Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Karen Philfalam, Changeboard's Deputy Editor, and today I'm joined by Brett Wigdortz, founder and ex-CEO of Teach First. But before we start, don't forget to subscribe to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast to get our weekly episodes straight away. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So sign up now. Brett founded Teach First back in 2002, leaving the corporate world with the dream of setting up a charity to change education and teaching standards. Over his 15 years leading the charity, Teach First has placed more than 10,000 graduates in schools nationwide, making it one of the UK's largest graduate recruiters. In this podcast, Brett takes us through his Teach First journey from initial idea to 15 years of leadership, his view on how we can change employability training for young people, and why business leaders need to interact with school children away from the metropolitan bubble in order to diversify their talent. Brett, welcome to this Changeboard Future Talent podcast. Um, I thought the easiest place to start perhaps would be to um, examine your history of Teach First. So maybe looking at the aims of what you want to do when you first set it up. Um, you know, was it about improving teaching standards? Was it about social mobility? What, what kind of motivated you to start? Um, well, I mean, our original mission was to address educational disadvantage, and what motivated me to start was visiting a lot of low-income schools in London, especially, um, and realizing that so many young people weren't getting the education they needed to be successful in life. Um, and I visited a number of schools which were just um, very sad places in 2002 where, um, you know, you wouldn't really want many children to go, and so many children uh, weren't getting the education they needed and, and had some very low standards. Um, on the other hand, I remember we were looking for really outstanding schools that had a lot of children from low-income communities, and we couldn't find any in London in 2002, which is kind of incredible. Now there's so <laughs> many fantastic schools with lots of kids from low-income communities. Um, but you know, what we started Teach First was to say, how could we really help some of these schools buck the trend and ensure that y young people from all communities can get the education they need to be successful in life? And y you mentioned just earlier off, off, off camera or offline that you were... You know, you're 27 when you started this business. What, what kind of motivated you? Was it, was it teaching? Was that always the area that you were working? I believe you were working out in Singapore, Indonesia, was it yeah. beforehand? I mean, my mom was a teacher for almost 50 years, and I come from a family of teachers, but teaching and education was never something I was really focused on. Um, I think I was a management consultant at McKinsey, and I was working on the war for talent, how businesses could attract the best talent, which is... You know, which hasn't of, changed at all. Yeah, a lot of your listeners are probably interested in. Um, and what really excited me, a lot of the projects I was on was problem solving. And with this, I saw there was a problem out there where there was too many schools with low-income communities that weren't doing as well as they needed. The problem in these schools, I think, was there wasn't enough great talent. Okay. In the sector as a whole, I think there weren't enough, um, there was definitely some, but not enough great talent who could really drive the sector forward, especially for low-income communities. And Teach First seemed like a potential solution to help that problem. And I think that's what drove me, was that this seemed like something that would work and make a real impact to the lives of lots of children. Um, so even though I had done nothing in education before, that created a career shift for me for this. And, and how did you get it off the ground? What, talk me through the process. So you know, how many years did it take? How many months did it take? You know, where, where did you even start with it? So you had the idea. And what happened next? So I was on a project um, at McKinsey where I was working, looking at how businesses could help education in London. Um, I, at the end of this project, I wrote a business plan for Teach First, and I went to my boss, um, Ian Davis, who later became the global head of McKinsey, and I asked if I could take a leave of absence to try to get it started. Um, 
uh, or actually at that point it wasn't it wasn't to get Teach First started. It was just to write a business plan for Teach First, so like a longer business plan, and scope it out and find an educational expert or someone British who could actually get it started. And so we agreed I'd take a three to six month um, unpaid leave of absence and, and see what I can do. And some of our clients, London First and Business in the Community, agreed to, to um, help out, um, you know, also. Mm. And so the original idea was just to write a longer business plan, see, you know, what would be needed for it to work, and then try to find someone. I'd only been in England nine months at that point, and I didn't know anything about education, <laughs> so I wasn't the right person to do it. Um, and then over a few months, I managed to get lots of support around it, managed to raise some money, wrote a more detailed business plan, um, managed to get, after a few false starts, got some government support. Okay. Um, Andrew Donis, who was working at 10 Downing Street, supported it, managed to convince the school's minister after, after a very difficult meeting and a much more positive meeting, <laughs> got businesses on board, raised about a million pounds, um, and after six months, I thought, all right, this is going to be much more fun than being a management consultant. <laughs> so I quit my job to, to do this at that point, which, which wasn't my original idea. And you know, in, in the, first, the first cohort of, of students you took in was around how many, how many graduates did you say? So it was quite big. Um, it was about 180, it was 186 the first okay. year, which um, is a lot smaller than it is now. But you know, the first year, I was having lots of battles with people who wanted to be a tiny pilot. And I wanted to start pretty big because okay. I thought if it was too small, it wouldn't have the um, scope, it wouldn't have the reputation. It and wouldn't, the impact, it, The impact, yeah. And you know, it would be harder to grow. So I was really pushing for 200 to start with, and okay. we start with 186. Um, I should say I've written a book about <laughs> how Teach First got started too, for anyone who's interested, which is available on Amazon, which is <laughs> Success Against the Odds, which goes into detail how, how Teach First got started. Um, uh, so you started you know, with, with, with around 886 students. Um, you know, there was a lot to get it off the ground. I imagine there's a lot of personal time in, in, invested in it. Um, what struck me is that Teach First has always seemed almost like a social mission as much as kind of about the quality of education. So you've always talked about Teach First ambassadors. We, we know we mm -hmm. see kind of graduates going into roles where they're, they're, they're not evangelical, but you know, it, it's played a big part in their, in their development in their careers. Was that always something you aimed at? Was that always something you wanted to do to create a movement? Yes, I would say from day one. Um, so, you know, I, I intentionally always felt this couldn't just be about recruiting teachers, okay. uh, just a teacher recruitment scheme. I think recruiting or training teachers is something we did, but we did it for the higher purpose of building a movement of leaders who would change society and really focus on this mission. And to me, that's the core of what Teach First is always about. It's this movement of leaders, and that's how, that's how change happens. And, and has it worked out the way you expected it? You know, have you, you know, have you seen people go into the kind of roles that, that you expect? We, you know, we, we were talking earlier about Steph Peacock, who's just recently become, I think in the last election, become an MP for, for Labour, who's a, a Teach First kind of alumni. Um, you know, have, have people moved in the circles that you wanted and, and kind of taken the movement where you saw it going or has it evolved in its own sort of way? Um, yeah, I mean, basically it has happened how I would have liked. I mean, it's been great. Um, we have 10,000 ambassadors now. We have uh, dozen, I think over 50 now head teachers, hundreds of uh, senior leaders in, in low-income schools, thousands of teachers. Before I met you, I met with Karen Gill, who has just created this amazing charity, Difference, uh, focusing on um, revitalizing Prus and working with excluded young people. Josh McAllister started this wonderful charity, uh, Frontline, helping to revitalize youth social work. We have business leaders who are getting their businesses involved in low-income communities. As you said, like Stephanie and others, we have politicians, civil servants. Um, you know, you go to 10 Downing Street and you see a bunch of Teach First um, alumni, ambassadors there who are working on all sorts of education and social change initiatives. 
um, you know, so it's really exciting. There's a real movement, I think, of people who, who are really focused on this issue. And do you almost see that Teach First, or do you, do you feel like Teach First may have been ahead of its time when you started in that sense? Because, you know, we talk now about graduates and young people really looking for kind of a mission in life to, to, to give something back, to kind of contribute to society in that sort of way. Whereas, you know, perhaps at the time there was some criticism of Teach First that, well, people are coming in and maybe teaching for a year or two and, and, and moving on or, or not necessarily changing things. Do, do, but I, I don't think people would say that now. People would see it as it, there is a real mm. mission behind it. Is that, is that something you feel or how do you see it? Yeah, maybe it was ahead of the time. I mean, I think, you know, even now, I mean, there's still the mentality for some people that, you know, the right way to do a job is to join a job when you're 21 and then retire when you're 70 mm. and um, 50 years later. And I just think... Um, you know, that's just not a way that millennials or people, you know, really think. I mean, I, I, don't th I think very few people enter a job thinking that's what they want to do for the next 50 years. And I, I guess I come from the point of view that's kind of healthy. Like, you know, there's every institution needs some long-standing individuals, including schools who have been there for a long time, who, you know, um, and I think that's really, you know, backbones of lots of institutions. Sure. Sure. But I also think you need a lot of people who move about, you know, and bring fresh energy, fresh ideas. You know, um, people get stale in any job, in any institution. And I don't think it's a bad thing that people are coming in and out of different institutions to bring new ideas. Um, I think that's a positive. And that also fits with how people want their careers to go nowadays. It also fits with society, doesn't it? I mean, I was recently speaking to um, Linda Grattan and Emma Birchall of uh, kind of London Business School and Hotspots, who written a book about the 100-year life, basically oh, saying yeah, that... Yeah, I read that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. now people are going to be living to 100. You know, people are going to be working. It's not a popular thing to say, you know, to people government-wise, but people who work into 80. You know, people now working yeah. for 60 years, potentially. And it, people want to move around. There's more to experience than just that traditional kind of mm -hmm. study till 20, work till 60, and retire for 10, 15 years. Right, right. Yeah, I think... And I, I think that can be really healthy. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. A lot of our head teachers... Um, were teachers for a while through Teach First and then left and worked in the business world and then came back to lead a school. Okay. And, you know, I think there's something also very positive about that. They bring different skill sets and expertise when they lead their schools. Yeah, it's, it's almost positive that people don't see is, is bringing those extra skills yeah. back into the education system. I mean, on, on the education system in, in, in kind of general in the, in the UK, how did Teach First kind of overcome the stereotypes of, of, of graduates at the beginning? So, you know, at the beginning there was this idea that perhaps these the graduates that went to the schools weren't necessarily qualified and there was a, almost a slight divide between some of the ex, you know, existing teachers and some of the graduates that you placed there. How did you change that attitude? Was it through the quality of the graduates and um, the yeah, ability I think it was quality. In? I think it was humility. I okay. think, um, you know, uh, any one of our, I mean, I would hope we selected based on respect and humility, any of our teachers who did go into a school and, you know, say, oh, guess what? I'm a top graduate and I've done this fast track <laughs> thing. Um, we very quickly realized that was a very stupid thing to say in the <laughs> staff room. And I think any of our uh, more intelligent teachers, which I think is the vast majority, quickly realized that you could learn a lot more from other staff. You know, it's not like they're coming in to save a staff room. They're coming in to be really good colleagues yeah. of other really great professionals who are already there. Um, and even if some teachers were skeptical about the scheme to start off with, once they met our teachers, saw them as colleagues, saw the value that they were bringing to schools, I think, I think that demystified it and hopefully brought down some barriers. And, and on, on the education system, you know, now perhaps moving away from, from TeachFest as, as much as you were then, you know, how you're, you've had 15 years plus kind of working in the education system or working with the education system in the UK. 
how do you think it can impact on the future of work? And do you think business and education needs to work more closely on, on issues to, to around social mobility or getting more people into work? Yeah, they definitely have to work more closely. Um, I mean, I, there's so many issues, I think. Um, What's your top couple, then, would you say? So, all right, on the positive side, schools are much better than they were 15 years ago, and I think we should celebrate that, um, especially in inner cities, especially in London, but all over the country. There's a lot less um, failing schools, like really bad schools than there used to be, and I think kids you know, know a lot more than they did in the past. And I think, I, I would hope business, I think people recognize that, that actually the education system is better than it was in the past. And, um, and most kids in England are now getting a pretty good education. So I think, um, you know, often teachers don't feel they're recognized for that. And I sure. think business should recognize them for that. Um, I think a, if I was thinking of the biggest issues, one big issue is we spent, I've spent a lot of time recently in coastal and more rural communities like a Hartlepool, Grimsby, Blackpool, yeah. Hastings, um, and the number of businesses and even charities and you know opportunities that these kids get is so small compared to uh, their you know counterparts in Tower Hamlets or Hackney or wherever. Um, and what I would love is more businesses to really seek out talent in those areas of the country. I've literally seen some of the most amazing classrooms and young people in a place like Grimsby. Um, and then I meet the head teacher, and he just is tearing his hair out trying to figure out how these kids can interact with business or with um, some of the opportunities that are out there in the country. Um, so, I mean, that's one huge disconnect that, that um, you know. Why do you think there is, is that mismatch? Is it is it just because people don't see that as, a, as, a, as an area? You know, business leaders don't see that as an area they should be going to, or there just isn't the pathways to go into that? Yeah, I think, well, I don't know how many of your listeners are based in London or big cities, but I'm it's guessing fair point. Yeah, the majority of them. Not and how many are based in Grimsby. Um, and I think probably a lot of business leaders don't see how much talent is out there in those areas. And there is, you know, visiting the schools, I can tell you there's some amazing kids there who are fantastic. Um, and um, so I think, you know, whenever I go to any conference, any talk on social mobility or on um, employability, it's always based in London, you know? Yeah. And so I think, um, and the people who are making these decisions, the people who are trying to figure out where they prioritize, even social entrepreneurs who are creating new charities, um, you know, they're based in London and they start in London, you know? So I think that there's all sorts of things that are pushing these solutions um, away from the people who need them the most. And I think that's just one issue which I would love if your listeners, when they're starting to think about how to improve these issues, they start with a child in Grimsby in their head rather than a child in London, because it's usually the London child that's front of mind. And, and is that, being slightly combative, is that, is that something that's kind of, um, something that's, that, that's, that's a recent kind of awakening in yourself, so that's always been at front of mind, because there has been previously kind of the, the idea that, you know, Teach First initially centred more on, on providing teachers in London and then Manchester, I think Birmingham yeah. this year, and then I know last year, it's moved with the government's help to kind of some of the social mobility areas. I think there's six key areas that it was moving into. Yeah, yeah, I would totally uh, hold my hand up to making the same mistake. I mean, when we started in 2002, London was one of the lowest performing areas of the country, okay. which isn't the case now. But we did the exact same mistake so many other charities do, is you start in London, then you go to Manchester, Birmingham, then you go to Leeds, then you go to Newcastle, then maybe <laughs> Bristol, and you go to Hartlepool or Grimsby 15 years later, sure. if at all. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, I think now Teach First is in a very good place in that we are really prioritizing these communities, but um, I think it took us too long. I think that was a huge mistake I made, definitely. Um, yeah, so I mean, and then I'd say the, uh, the other big um, problem is I think this is one of these social problems that falls through the cracks where no one knows, you know, head teachers are really focused on um, GCSE results, on, um, you know, test results, 
And um, you know, businesses want talent to come in. Um, government wants all sorts of things. Um, but note, it feels like there's one of these problems that's falling through the cracks of lots of sure. different stakeholders, and no one actually owns the problem. And that's, I think, one of the reasons maybe um, employability training for young people isn't as good as it could be. And do you think that you know those, again, we talk a lot about the future of work and, and those employability skills perhaps being the more almost human skills rather yeah. than necessarily the, the technical skills if we look at kind of automation and AI and how that's impacting the, the, the future of work. There isn't really a kind of a framework for assessing young people's perhaps leadership skills mm -hmm. or their communication skills. How, how could a young person or how could a recruiter kind of find those skills and, and almost benchmark them against other people? Or is it more about meeting people on an individual level? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Um, you know, um, it was Einstein, I think, who said, um, not everything important can be measured and not everything that's measured is important. And, you know, there's no question, we, 15 years ago, a lot of schools I'd go to and the head teacher would say, I just want my kids to be happy and they were sort of floating along. The positive thing today is schools are focused on getting their kids' academic results. And the good thing is kids have, young people have, have better academic results than they did in the past. And I think that's the positive of a more test-driven culture. The negative of a more test-driven culture is, you know, you can't measure everything that's important. And quite a lot of important sure. things aren't being prioritized because of the current culture that's much more, you know, test-driven. So I think that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, again, going back to the regional versus London, mm. the one thing that I always notice is whenever I visit a London or a big city metropolitan school um, and I ask kids about their school, the young people are always very vocal, have tons of suggestions how their school can be improved, have tons of thoughts about things. Often when I go to other areas of the country, like coastal areas, the first thing young people are surprised about my accent and almost nervous about <laughs> speaking with someone from who has an American accent who they don't know um, and often are very quiet at first about what they think about their school. Then, a half hour later, after opening up a bit, you realize they're just as, you have just as many <laughs> ideas and are, if anything, you know, as bright, brighter than the kids you meet in London. But it's that self-confidence and that, um, you know, that experience of communicating with lots of different types of people um, in different settings that often young people in other areas of the country don't have. So, um, you know, and that's something which, you know, would be great if there's a way to improve that and how... Um, you know, employers can help improve that to make use of some of that talent outside the big cities. And it, it, it's been kind of five, six months since you, you left the post at Teach First. Um, what have you been working on in, in the meantime, and, and how does it feel to have stepped away from something that you spent 15 years creating? Um, yeah, it's felt really great, actually, stepping down. <laughs> like, uh, it's funny, you know, I think 15 years is a long time to lead an organization, and it's it's usually a really bad idea for anyone to stay 15 years or more to lead an organization, okay. um, any organization, no matter what. Why do you think that? Sorry. Because um, you kind of achieve what you want to achieve, basically. And then you, um, I think Tony Blair, when he was 10 years, made a comment where he said, over time, you, you get more and more enemies <laughs> over time because right. you disappoint more and more people. <laughs> um, you know, when he was like prime minister because you fire ministers or you do things and so you just accumulate enemies over time, you know, <laughs> which gets bigger and bigger. Um, so hopefully I didn't accumulate too many enemies. But, um, but it is true that it's just the longer you're in an organization, the more difficult sometimes it is to make change, I think. And sometimes, you know, I have a fantastic successor, Russell, who I think is in and uh, able to, you know, bring things to the next um, level for Teach First. And I think, yeah, 15 years is a long time to lead an organization. Um, 
and it's been great. It's a, I feel like basically I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I set out to do something and I did it and now it's time for someone else to achieve the sure. next thing. Um, the, so the last six months I've really enjoyed for the first time in 15 years, kind of taking a bit of a break, <laughs> spending time with my family. Um, I've been doing some consulting, some really interesting work uh, with a few different people, including I was working with Jamie Oliver on his youth obesity strategy, okay. which is really exciting. Um, some of the work he's doing to help reduce youth obesity levels, um, as well as some different school chains in England and other countries. Um, and then I'm looking to do another startup in 2018, really focused on early years and okay. um, how to improve the lives of child minders and small nurseries and improve the quality of, um, of what they're doing with young people. And how do you feel your kind of experience having led Teach First will impact that? Do you think you'll do things differently, the same? What kind of learnings have you made from, from the experience? I mean, the, some of the big learnings from Teach First is, first of all, real change is possible. So, um, you know, that thinking outside the box is, is something I think that after Teach First is something I, it's great. Second nature. Second almost nature then. almost, you know, that just because something's a certain way today, it doesn't have to be that way tomorrow. I've seen so many examples of that. Um, I think the importance of collaboration and a values-based approach is really important. That, um, you know, I think Teachers has been really successful because it wasn't just me. It was a really collaborative organization. It's a core value. We've worked with so many other organizations to make change happen. Um, and I think sometimes I see founders of other organizations who are just so single-minded um, and they don't realize that you need, to, you need to make a joint approach to problems and mm -hmm. solutions. Um, I think having a clear mission is really important. You know, that's been key lesson for Teach First. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I think, I mean, the best thing about Teach First has been it's been really fun working with so many talented individuals. I think, you know, what I've seen at Teach First is, first of all, talented individuals want to make change happen. Um, they want to make an impact. They want to do it in a mission and vision and values-based environment. And uh, that's been really exciting. And these are all lessons I'd love to take to my next venture. And just on that, you know, how did you maintain, because obviously being the CEO and, and the founder and the driving force almost behind the organization, you know, must take a, a toll, you know, on your kind of almost your well-being, you know, how did you maintain kind of a work-life balance? Is that even possible as, as, as the CEO and founder of an organization like that or, or what did you find? Yeah, I think it's possible to work-life balance. Um, I mean, I don't know what my wife would say, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, I always... Um, you know, I very rarely work on weekends, and I we always take holiday, and my family is very important to me. Um, I think it's hard to prioritize too many other things other than work and your family when you're doing a startup. <laughs> but, um, is there anything you wish you had been able to perhaps prioritize? Anything that you wish you, you could have done? <laughs> Would have liked to learn a foreign language, a musical <laughs> instrument, something. I don't know. I, mean, I don't feel like I've learned anything <laughs> like that. But no, I no. I mean, I think um, I feel like you know I've just prioritized spending time with my family and um, and teach first. Uh, you know, has been the important things to prioritize. Um, but definitely, I think, um, I think the, you know, the secret for anyone to have a work-life balance is to delegate really well. And I think, you know, often, especially founders of organizations feel they have to do anything, everything themselves. And from my experience, whenever I've tried to do everything myself, it's been a bit of a failure. Whenever I've tried to get other people to do a lot of it, it's been much more successful. And I think that's the biggest lesson. What advice would you give to other leaders? Is there any key piece of advice you could give? I think a key piece of advice is, um, you know, let me think. I think a key piece of advice is just never giving up. I okay. mean, this is sort of a cliche, um, but you know, there's so many times at Teach First where it almost failed, and it could have been such a failed experiment where ministers turned us down or we had different problems. And I, my experience is sometimes people give up a bit too quickly. Um, 
that you know you see so many stories of successful organizations that have been through really major problems and the difference between them and organizations that have folded is they just haven't given up. They've always been thinking outside the box of new ways to solve problems. Um, and I think, um, I think that's really important. And I think, I think being open to change is really important. You know, I think that, um, that there's lots of opportunities in being open to change over time. Yeah. Brett, thank you for your time. Yeah, uh, thanks. Cool. Thank you for listening to this Future Talent podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a comment or rating. You can check out our other stories on our website at www.changeboard.com or follow us on Twitter with the handle at Changeboard. We look forward to welcoming you to another Future Talent podcast very soon.